Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of January 2019 and this is episode 96. On today's programme, I talk to military historian Dr John Peaty about a Lawrence of Arabia. I talk to John from his home in London. John, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in T.E. Lawrence? Well, thank you very much. I'm um, a military historian and I've been long interested in the uh, British Army, especially in the 20th century in the World Wars. I'm also a great fan of the cinema, and so my interests coincided in an interest in T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, whom I've um, studied and written and lectured about for quite a few years now. Hopefully, before too long, I will um, go into print. Who was Lawrence of Arabia? What was his family background and education? Well, he had a very complicated background. He was illegitimate. He was one of five sons of Thomas Chapman, later Sir Thomas Chapman, an Anglo-Irish baronet from County Westmeath in Ireland. Chapman was happily married uh, with daughters and a Scottish governess, Sarah Junner, uh, was employed to look after them and they started an affair uh, which was discovered and so Chapman and Junner uh, left Ireland. They moved to various places, Wales, Scotland, France, before ending up in Oxford in 1896. So Lawrence was actually born in 1888 in in Wales, but uh, he never regarded himself as Welsh. He was Anglo-Irish and and Scottish, and he grew up in Oxford, and that's where he was educated at the high school and then at Jesus College, Oxford. Tell us about his personality and character. What sort of man was he? He was an unusual man. Uh, I think anyone who came into contact was struck by how different he was. Uh, Extremely well-read, extremely erudite, uh, and a very intelligent man who carved his own path carved his own way. He was very much stood apart from everyone else. He was an archaeologist uh, before he became a soldier and he was very uh, remarkable in the British Army. The First World War obviously provided an opening for many remarkable men, brought in a lot of interesting characters into the British Army and Lawrence was certainly one of them. He was a great writer, great author, had extraordinary memory, he was a map maker, uh, he was a, an incredible man. So what was he doing before the outbreak of the war? Well he was in uh, the Middle East uh, working as an archaeologist. It's very important to realise that he spent four years on the ground uh, excavating at Carchemish and also in Sinai. And this, of course, was very important preparation for his wartime activity. He acquired knowledge of Arabic and he acquired knowledge of the ground, the terrain. He acquired uh, knowledge of the peoples, of the tribe, of the feuds. He, knew, he acquired knowledges, uh, knowledge of the wells, uh, the main routes. So that four years that he spent in the Middle East, in various parts of the Middle East, was tremendously important. So it wasn't a case uh, that he just arrived in Arabia and just picked up um, the language and his knowledge of the ground and the people instantly. 
it was something that he had worked at and acquired over time. So on the outbreak of war, what was Lawrence doing and how did he end up in the British Army? Well, he volunteered for the British Army and he served at the uh, the War Office in, in London. He served on the geographical section of the General Staff, which was responsible for uh, maps and surveying. And then he was uh, sent to Cairo, where he was also involved on maps and survey. The Arab Revolt began in June 1916 and he went to Arabia as a liaison officer as a in a training and advisory capacity in the October of uh, 1916. So he wasn't responsible for the Arab revolt and he was not on the ground when it started. Just to step back a couple of, uh, to rewind slightly, what exactly was the Arab revolt and what was its causes and who were, quotes, the Arabs that were revolting? Right, well it was the result of partly of British encouragement from uh, Kitchener and from McMahon and it was partly the Arab um, and in particular the Hashemites themselves. Uh, The Hashemite uh, Sheriff Hussein of Mecca and his sons, uh, most prominently Faisal, uh, they ruled in the Hejaz in Western Arabia which contains the two holy cities of Medina and Mecca and so he revolted against Turkish rule encouraged by the British and the British aim was to thwart the Ottoman Sultan's call for jihad firstly and to keep the Red Sea open to Allied shipping secondly. which contained a a small summer garrison, uh, was quickly captured, uh, largely thanks to the support of Egyptian mountain artillery. But Medina and Taif, which was the hill station, the summer station of the Turks, were were tougher propositions. And Taif, with its uh, 3,000 men, uh, surrendered in September, uh, again largely thanks to Egyptian mountain artillery. Medina held out despite attacks throughout the war. And so when Lawrence arrived in October, he advised against uh, further attacks on Medina and he instead he advised hit-and-run attacks on the main Turkish supply line, which was the Hejaz Railway, which ran from Damascus in Syria right down to Medina, and whose initial purpose was to carry pilgrims on the on the Hajj, but was the main Turkish supply line. And uh, so those uh, the railway was attacked by the, the, the British officers, uh, supporting the Arabs, uh, by Newcomb, by Hornby and Garland, as well as Lawrence. And it was actually Garland who's a forgotten figure now who was the first to destroy a Turkish locomotive in February 1917. So what was um, Lawrence's role with the um, Arab revolt? What, what was it? What did his um, role as a liaison officer um, involve? Well he was precisely that, a liaison officer. Uh, he was there in a training and advisory capacity. There were actually 40 British liaison officers serving with the Arab forces, the Hashemite forces in the Hejaz. So Lawrence was one of 40 and he was by no means the most senior. Uh, this is where um, popular accounts, including the uh, the movie, uh, which is uh, superb cinema, but poor history, uh, gives a false impression. Actually, in his, his account of the Arab revolt, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, in his introductory chapter, he wrote, my proper share was a minor one, but because of a fluent pen, a free speech, and a certain adroitness of brain, I took it upon myself as I describe it, a mock primacy. In reality, I never had any office among the Arabs, was never in charge of the British mission with them. And that's a very honest, frank account. And the fact is, is that that chapter was, that introductory chapter was dropped when the book was published on the advice of George Bernard Shaw. And so uh, the account, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, has and, and the film has maintained this uh, impression, gives the impression that uh, 
Lawrence was the leader or one of the leaders of the Arab revolt. He was certainly significant, but Joyce and Newcomb were also very significant figures. The thing to note is that uh, they did not command the Arab revolt. The Arab revolt was commanded by the uh, sheriffs. Uh, they advised, and they advised very, very cleverly. Lawrence used to put the idea in the mind of the sheriff uh, one evening, and then the following morning the sheriff would say, I've had a wonderful idea, we're going to do this. And that's how you work in an Arab environment. You do not dictate or tell the Arabs what to do. So what type of operations did uh, Lawrence and his colleagues actually advise to do? I mean, we, there's, there's a famous scene in the in the film uh, with Peter at all leading attack on Aqaba. How much of, of those type of um, actually catching territory did, was he involved in? Uh, that is one of the most uh, exciting and iconic scenes in the film, and it never happened. Never happened at all. Lawrence encouraged the Arabs to fight a guerrilla war against the Turkish garrisons and against the, the railroad, hit-and-run attacks. He says in the revolt in the, in the desert, which was an, an earlier popular abridgment of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he said, I began with three propositions. Firstly, that irregulars would not attack places and so remained incapable of forcing a decision. Secondly, that they were as unable to defend a line or point as they were to attack it. Thirdly, that their virtue lay in depth, not in face. He presented the Turks with a, with a problem by this guerrilla warfare. And in his famous article, Evolution of a Revolt, 1920, he coined this famous phrase, to make war upon rebellion is messy and slow, like eating soup with a knife. That's the problem he confronted the Turks with. You had this revolt in, in the Hejaz, which the Hashemite Arabs were taking part in, supported by the, the British liaison officers and a great deal of British support and aid. The only Red Sea port uh, left to the Turks was the one in the far north, Aqaba. And so Lawrence came up with this idea, and I think it was his idea, to march and capture Aqaba. The, they took a very roundabout way of reaching Aqaba, uh, which fooled the Turks, and they approached it from the uh, northern end, from the landward side, which is where the main Turkish defences were and where the main garrison was, at the northern end of a gorge, uh, Wadi Itim, which was key to Aqaba. You could take Aqaba. Uh, it was very lightly defended. It did not have any heavy guns. That's just incorrect. Uh, the problem was is that once you took Aqaba, there was this huge gorge-like wadi that um, meant you couldn't actually exploit the landing. So uh, Lawrence marched the forces from Wedge round a big right flank and came in upon the Turks, the main Turkish defences and the main Turkish garrison at Wadi Itim at the northern end of this gorge. And there was a battle and it didn't go terribly well. Um, and it was Alda Abu Tai who, who rallied the forces and actually defeated the Turks. Lawrence frankly admits that his sole contribution to success in the battle was accidentally blowing out the brains of his own camel. And following that um, battle at Abu Lissan, Lawrence wrote a letter to the uh, commander in Aqaba and they surrendered. So they just rode into Aqaba. So unfortunately there wasn't a wonderful charge through Aqaba to the sea passing heavy guns that didn't exist. The films also portray uh, Lawrence as actually having a major role in persuading the Arabs to join the British war effort, if I, my memory serves me correctly. 
quickly. How accurate is this? And, and was it guaranteed that they would have joined the Allied side in their struggle against Turkish domination? Well, I think the, the Hashemites were unhappy with Turkish rule, although Turkish rule could be um, quite benevolent as well as brutal. Uh, they were encouraged to to rise and they were given certain assurances in the Hussein McMahon correspondence. It's interesting to note that the Saudis uh, had nothing to do with the Arab revolt. If you go to the Ashmolean Museum in uh, Oxford, you will find a display dedicated to Lawrence of Arabia and it twice mentions uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, that's unhistorical on two grounds. One, Saudi Arabia did not exist until long after the First World War and secondly, uh, the Saudis uh, sat on their hands and let the Hashemites do all the fighting. So the, the aim was to, it was a threefold aim on the part of the British. It was, and the Arab revolt succeeded in doing this, it was to uh, tie down and degrade Turkish forces, uh, their various garrisons and their, their railway, the Hejaz railway, blockhouses, etc. Um, it diverted and absorbed Turkish resources, and it protected the right flank of Allied advance, because when Akiba was, was taken in uh, the July of um, 1917, Allenby had just arrived in, in theatre and started preparations to fight the third Battle of Gaza. Allenby always paid tribute to his uh, predecessor, uh, who's portrayed rather uh, badly in the film. And he he always said that his his predecessor had based uh, made the logistic base for his success and had also supported the Arab revolt. But it was only when Aqaba was was captured that you could actually using British merchant vessels protected by British warships, you could actually move men and supply material into into Aqaba and support Allenby's right flank when he fought Third Gaza and then a year later Megiddo. And it's worth bearing in mind British aid to the Arab revolt. It was rifles, it was mountain artillery, it was ammunition, explosives, money, a great deal of money. It was mortars, it was machine guns, it was food, it was water. We transported water to Arabia. It was medicines, it was fodder. It was armoured cars, it was aircraft, and it was trainers and advisors. And that was all possible because we had command of the sea, we had a significant mercantile marine, and we had a significant navy. The Arab Revolt is uh, a testament to sea power. So when you come to look at the, the role of the Arab Revolt, the role of Lawrence um, in, in in the whole, and you look at the British war effort in Palestine um, and moving up through Syria, what was the role of Lawrence and, and the Arabs in, in the overall victory against the Ottoman Empire? Well, the the aim was to protect Allenby's right flank, to distract the uh, Turks uh, across the Jordan. And at Megiddo, Allenby very successfully deceived the Turks into thinking that he would be attacking across the Jordan in the desert open flank. Of course, he had actually secretly moved the bulk of his mobile forces to the western coastal flank. So he managed very successfully to deceive the Turks. So the Arabs operating on the eastern desert flank uh, managed to cut the railways into and out of Amman and then came up and acted as a distraction to the Turks. Now the film gives the impression, wrongly again, uh, that the Arabs were first into Damascus. Well this is incorrect. It was actually the Australian mounted forces who were first into Damascus um, and then after accepting the surrender kept on going chasing the uh, Turks up to Aleppo and so the the impression is created that the Arabs took Damascus 
and that is not strictly correct because the Australians beat them by one day. When you think about Lawrence and his um, activity and performance during the war, what actually made him effective in, in coordinating and, and inspiring and bringing the Arabs on board? Well, I think he was a, um, several things. I think he was a scholar of war. He'd studied war. He, as I said, was a cartographer and, and map maker and surveyor. So he could read ground very well and had a very good memory for ground. Because of his uh, four years in the Middle East before the war, he knew the people, he knew the dialects, he knew the tribe, he knew what to do and what not to do. In 1917, he published uh, 27 articles, which are very good advice about working with irregulars, uh, native forces. And they were taken up by the, the British and American armies in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of them is very famous, uh, do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than that you do it perfectly. It is their war and you are there to help them, not to win it for them. So I think he was... He was playing to the Arab strength. I think he was very astute in dealing with Arab leaders, not embarrassing them, not making them lose face, uh, not giving orders, grey eminence, if you like. But he was also a very um, brave man as well. He was also a man of action. Uh, he was involved in the in the attacks himself. So he was both a man of um, a scholar, uh, but he was also a, a warrior as well. And it's possible that he, he saw himself himself as a, a crusader knight. His thesis at Oxford was on crusader castles, and I think that's probably significant. The Arab revolt was going nowhere and would have gone nowhere without all that aid and support that the British gave and which I listed earlier. So we come to the end of the war. What does Lawrence do for the rest of his life? Well, he went home and he was he didn't really want anything to do with the uh, uh, with honors or command in war again he did attend the paris peace conference uh, as an advisor to Faisal. He felt that the Arabs had not been given everything that they had been promised. And it's fair to say that, that during the war, Britain had made various promises in various circumstances to various people which were not strictly compatible. Uh, the Hussein McMahon correspondent, the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration are not strictly comparable. But I think they demonstrate how, how badly the war was going uh, and what you are prepared to do when you uh, are forced by necessity to make promises that uh, you probably would prefer not to. Hussein uh, was was uh, had the kingdom in the Hejaz. Faisal tried to become a, a king of uh, Syria. That was ejected by the French. And Abdullah became king, well, originally emir of Transjordan. And later he became uh, King of Jordan, uh, where his descendants rule to this day. Uh, it was uh, the Cairo Peace Conference. Uh, Churchill, who was a, an admirer of Lawrence, pointed Lawrence as his advisor. And the creation of, of Transjordan and Iraq under under Hashemites, under the sons of Hussein, both Churchill and Lawrence felt that this was as much as they, they could do to satisfy honour. Iraq and Jordan still exists to this day. The rest of Arabia, as I said earlier, was cleaned up by the Saudis. The Hashemites were expelled from um, the Hejaz. So Lawrence had felt that he'd, he'd, he'd done what honour required, and so did Churchill. And he served in the forces um, in the rank, uh, in the RAF, uh, in the Royal Tank Corps. Uh, he served under a pseudonym as, as uh, Ross and as Shaw. And he was living near Bovington Camp in Dorset uh, when he was, he was killed in a road traffic accident. 
Ireland in 1935. And his service in the ranks was an interesting time. He, he wrote a, an interesting book, uh, The Mint, about his service in the RAF from the other ranks' point of view. And it is not literature in the same way that Seven Pillars of Wisdom is, but it's a very frank and very uh, clear view of service in the RAF in the 20s. And he was very much involved with powerboats and air-sea rescue launches on Southampton Water and made a significant contribution to that. And then, as I say, he um, serving in the uh, Royal Tank Corps, living at Clouds Hill just outside Bobbington Camp when he was killed in a, on his motorbike in a road traffic accident in the May of 1935. So how has Lawrence been portrayed in film in theatre and how much um, truth is there between the fictional portrayals and the historical fact? Well, there was... Uh, there were many attempts to film, uh, make a film of Lawrence um, in the 30s. Alexander Corder tried for five years to make a film about Lawrence and failed. He b abandoned the project in 1939 and um, went off to make Four Feathers instead. And uh, the reasons why the film was abandoned, they're twofold, I think. One was it was going to be filmed in, in Palestine, where the Arabs were again in revolt, ironically, uh, not against the Turks this time, but against us. And the second reason was that the film, of course, was did not portray the Turks in a very good light, and Churchill was aware of, of, of a coming war, as we know, and did not want the Turks upset. And so the film was not made. And the, there was another attempt at a film in the 50s, and Dirk Bogard was going to play the role, but that never came off. And the film script that had been written for that film by Terence Rattigan later became the play Ross, which was a great success on the uh, London stage in 1960 uh, with Alec Guinness playing the role. And that's about uh, Lawrence's service in the ranks after the war. Uh, Lawrence had been portrayed on the stage before in the in the 1930s. Uh, he was very close to George Bernard Shaw and Charlotte Shaw. He had been parodied, if you like, in one of Shaw's lesser-known plays in the 30s. Of course, most famously, in 1962, was the Lawrence of Arabia, the spectacular film directed by David Lean, uh, starring Peter O'Toole, which is undoubtedly one of the great masterpieces of cinema. It's one of my favourite films, no doubt about that at all. But it is extremely poor history, and most people are unaware of the disclaimer in the credits at the end of the film, which says, this story is based upon actual events. However, some of the characters and incidents portrayed and the names herein are fictitious, and any similarity to the name, character, or history of any person living or dead, or any actual event, is entirely coincidental and unintentional. So the film gives you the impression that there weren't 40 uh, liaison officers uh, with the Arabs. It gives you the impression that Aqaba was taken uh, with its heavy guns by this great charge. It gives you the impression that Lawrence was in command. It gives you the impression the Arabs took Damascus. And when the film came out, there was criticism of the film by Lady Allenby, by various others, Basil Littlehart, and Lawrence's surviving brother, Arnold Lawrence, who said, from opening to the end, almost every event in this film is either fictitious or fictionalised. I should not have recognised my brother. I think what the film doesn't bring out fully, although the, the, um, there is a character of an American journalist in the film, which is uh, vaguely based on um, Lowell Thomas, I, I don't think the film brings out fully the way that uh, 
Lawrence and the Arab Revolt was built up by the American press. Obviously, America entered the war in April 1917. The Americans have this belief that they are an ex-colonial people and that they support other colonial people fighting for liberation. And it was better copy than what was happening on the Western Front. It was more romantic, it was more uh, interesting uh, for the American audiences than than what was happening on the Western Front, uh, where the American forces didn't really become engaged in in, in significance uh, until the middle of of 1918. So I think that that, the film does not fully bring out the uh, creation of of Lawrence as as one of the world's first media celebrities, along with Charlie Chaplin, I suppose. so, John, what was, what was Lawrence's sexuality? Well, Lawrence's sexuality has been um, disputed since 1955 when uh, Richard Aldington suggested that he was homosexual. And that assertion has been denied by Lawrence's friends and family. Many of, uh, of Lawrence's associates believed that he was asexual. And he said more than once in letters that he hadn't had um, physical sex with any, any person. What we do know is that he claimed that at Dera in 1916 he was captured and, and sexually abused by Turkish soldiers. Um, and he gave an explicit account of that to Charlotte Shaw, who was a sort of surrogate mother, which was a bit odd because his mother long survived him. Now, that's given rise to suggestions that he was gay. There is evidence that was revealed in, in 1968 by the biography by Knightley and Simpson that he, he had been uh, whipped, flagellated in, uh, in the ranks, serving after the war. And the family, Arnold Lawrence, knew about that. They said it was not sexual. They said it was akin to medieval flagellation. So the, in a nutshell, there is no evidence of any physical sexual relationship involving Lawrence. There is evidence that he was he was very attracted and very close to a young Arab um, while working at a, as an archaeologist in Carchemish, to whom he, d- he dedicated Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But there is no evidence. It's possible that he was suffering from what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. The, 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 the whippings and beatings were connected to what happened to him at, at Dera in 1916 when he was um, briefly captured. But it is, of course, uh, a huge fascination for people today, as everyone is sex-obsessed. And you're, you're going to write a book about Lawrence, am I correct? I'm going to write a monograph about uh, media portrayals about Lawrence, and starting I... from, from photojournalism during the First World War to uh, an audiovisual show that played to packed houses in, in London and New York after the First World War, through the court of film, uh, the abortive attempts in the 50s, and then finally the uh, 1962 Lawrence of Arabia. And if I've got time, there was also uh, uh, a very good TV movie uh, starring Ray Fiennes about, uh, that was made in 1992, about Lawrence after Arabia, which included his um, involvement in the Paris Peace Conference. John, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. 
It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.